If you were in a horror movie, this would be the part where the used car you just bought doesn't start. But you're not in a horror movie, and you found your car on Carfax.com. With Carfax, you won't have to overpay for a used car because you'll know its value. Shop great deals at the all-new Carfax.com. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. John Morant was born a free black man in New York in 1755. He became a musician, a trade that, as he put it, opened me to a large door of vanity and vice and supplied him with as much money as I had any occasion for. Able to indulge in his whims, he lived without God and was as unstable as water. After moving to Charleston, South Carolina, he and a friend happened to walk by a revival meeting led by George Whitefield, which he entered on a dare. Here's his account. The Lord accompanied the word with such power that I was struck to the ground and lay both speechless and senseless near half an hour. When I was come to, I found two men attending me and a woman throwing water in my face and holding a smelling bottle to my nose. Every word I heard from the minister was like a parcel of swords thrust in me. And what added to my distress, I thought I saw the devil on every side of me. I was constrained in the bitterness of my spirit to hollow out in the midst of a congregation, which disturbing them, they took me away. But finding I could neither walk nor stand, they carried me as far as the vestry, and there I remained till the service was over. When the people were dismissed, Mr. Whitefield came into the vestry, and being told of my condition, he came immediately. And the first word he said to me was, Jesus Christ has got thee at last. John Morant's story may sound familiar to anyone who's been around or knows much about evangelical Christianity. Being suddenly struck down by the Spirit of the Lord and experiencing a dramatic rebirth into a new life with Christ. But that sort of story is only familiar now because of writings like Morant's and the movement he was a part of, what's called the First Great Awakening. In the mid-1700s, a new generation of preachers began to extol a radical break from the subdued and heavily structured church practices of the time. They argued that individuals could recover the true nature of Christianity, a direct connection with God, unmediated and immediate, which would allow for the complete rebirth of the soul. Thousands and thousands of colonists flocked to these sermons, and many testified to the kind of experience that Morant describes. While we were not yet the United States, scholars often point to this era as one of the places where a distinctly American self-conception emerged. Individualistic, with a firm belief in the capacity to reinvent oneself. 
It formed the outline of how Americans still relate to celebrities and political leaders as though we have a personal relationship and as if they can offer us transformation if we follow their call. It's such a heavily formative period, there have actually been at least two more Great Awakenings, times of intense religious fervor and mass conversions. Thomas Kidd is a historian of the Great Awakening and Colonial Society at Baylor University. I brought him on to walk us through the specifics of the Great Awakening and to speculate on how the American thirst for spiritual change reverberates today. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I am excited to talk to you about the Great Awakening. It's something I wanted to cover on this season from the very beginning because I feel like it's such a foundational and interesting quirk in our history. I guess for someone that writes books about it, it's more than a quirk. But it is before we were actually a country. Do you want to do, I don't know, what you would tell an undergraduate about the Great Awakening? How would you explain it? Sure. It's the the biggest uh, religious, but also social upheaval in America, in the British colonies in America, before the American Revolution. So it's a time when, over the course of uh, about three years, uh, but with cascading consequences up to the revolution, thousands and thousands of people in America uh, said that they were born again uh, as Christians for the first time. Um, and, and this, of course, was significant for the people who were involved on a personal level and on a church level. But it was also, in a way, uh, an attack on the established authorities in the colonies um, because there were a lot of pastors that came under criticism for not supporting the Great Awakening, and even some state officials who sort of liked the regular church order and uh, the way things had been uh, were critical of these new uh, evangelical Christians coming out of the Great Awakening. And so some historians have gone so far as to say that the Great Awakening was kind of a test run for the American Revolution, uh, happening only 30 years uh, before the revolution itself. You would expect meetings like this to happen in the churches, um, but most of the church buildings were uh, too small to handle the crowds that were coming. Um, and, and you know maybe a big church could handle a few hundred people, uh, but thousands of people were coming to these meetings. Um, and the most uh, explosive uh, scenes that you had in the Great Awakening were definitely the revivals of George Whitfield, who was the most important evangelist of the Great Awakening. And his meetings were certainly drawing routinely thousands of people. Um, but in London, uh, where his first big revival meetings were happening, he was drawing in the tens of thousands of people. And sometimes uh, the crowd size were even uh, quoted as being 40, 60, even 80,000 people one time. And this is, of course, in an age prior to uh, amplification. I was and just going to ask. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I mean, the, these are bigger crowds than probably had ever been seen in maybe in human history. Um, that's how big they were. And, uh, you know, probably half the people who came couldn't even hear the speaker talking at <laughs> meetings like that. But it was such an event that they wanted to be there anyway. So it might be helpful maybe to get a sense of what the attitude towards religion was like prior to this great awakening. Like, what were they awakening from? Because I think a lot of us 
at least know about, if don't quite believe, the foundational origin story of America, which has to do with people coming here to practice a religion. So weren't we pretty religious already? Yeah, in many ways, uh, the American colonies were quite religious, um, especially the northern colonies. Uh, The southern colonies, Virginia, South Carolina, were a little more focused on business purposes and making money. Uh, The northern colonies, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, places like that were, of course, fine with making money. Um, But they, the people who had come there first, uh, the Puritans in the New England colonies, the Quakers in Pennsylvania, had come for specific uh, religious reasons. Um, And the main event in the Great Awakening is is really mostly in New England. And so uh, if you think about Massachusetts, for instance, being founded in 1630, so the Great Awakening is happening about 110 years later. So this is into the third or fourth generation of colonists uh, living there. And some of those people, I think, had not been as intense in their religious commitment as their parents and grandparents had been. And that, that's pretty predictable. I mean, you, you think about people who are so motivated by religion that they would pick up and cross the Atlantic, which was always a dangerous thing to do in, in those days, and, and start a new life in a colony where they hoped they could have a religious freedom. What, well, some of their children and grandchildren just weren't quite as intense in their Christian commitment as as those earlier generations had been, but they still grew up in a pervasively religious milieu. Uh, and, and so I, I think that most of the people who are converting in the Great Awakening are certainly not coming out of what we would call like an unchurched background. Um, most of them had been going to church uh, at least fairly regularly for their whole lives. But they felt like, I think a lot of the, those people who converted felt like that they had somehow missed the core meaning of their faith, that they had taken too much for granted, and that they needed to make their faith uh, personal and powerful in a way that it had never been before. Any big historical event is, can be challenging to boil down to why it happens. And religious events, I think, have the added dynamic that the participants themselves would have said, well, God made it happen. Um, and the, you know, listeners may have a variety of, opinion, of opinions about that, but um, in in more worldly, mundane terms, um, I think Whitfield's role is key. Uh, he is a titanic celebrity, and not just religious celebrity, but a titanic celebrity of, of the age uh, that draws uh, massive attention through the media. And I, I think the new evangelicals, people like Whitfield and Edwards, are are preaching at least a new focus on the individual's relationship with God and the born again experience, which is which is described in the Bible. But for many Christian groups before the 1740s, the born again experience hadn't been as as dramatic and powerful. Some people said that it actually happened to babies when they were baptized. And of course, you couldn't really recognize that as happening the way you could to an adult who decides for themselves to receive Christ and to be born again. Uh, that, that It's a really dramatic new focus. And you can imagine that a lot of people who had been sort of casually attending church, obligatory observance of religion before this point, found it quite enticing and exciting uh, to think that out of all this religion, religious activity that that 
maybe they could be born again and know God personally and have assurance of salvation. If you had all the kinds of assumptions that they had, that, that would be a, even a scintillating prospect. So I have to confess that I hadn't really thought about the nature of the conversion experience itself being different in the Great Awakening, it being kind of a, a new Philip, as it were. Because we do see conversion experiences in the Bible. Uh, we have a great white light experience, you know, with Saul. Um, and I guess I'd always kind of assumed that that was how a lot of Christians experienced uh, coming to Christ. But there's sort of a new narrative here, uh, a new narrative that develops around conversion experiences that's very appealing. Yeah, I, I mean, and people like St. Augustine had had dramatic conversion experiences going back into the, you know, the post-biblical Christian past. Um, but I think for a long time in medieval Catholicism that the conversion experience was not central uh, to their faith and experience. I mean, dramatic um, encounters with God certainly were for Catholic mystics and so forth. But but when you get to the, the Reformation and the, the Protestant forebears of the people in the, in the Great Awakening, you know, they, they would talk about conversion, but they didn't speak about it with as much confidence as people in the Great Awakening did. The Puritans in England would, would say that they were hopeful that they were converted, but it would take a long time for them to come around to any kind of level of assurance that it had actually happened, partly because I think, I think they had a very strong belief in the potential for self-deception. Um, but people in the Great Awakening uh, t- tended to go back to those scenes in the Book of Acts and uh, the conversion of Saul, Paul, and 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 think, you know, that maybe this is normative, and may- maybe people do have that kind of uh, blinding experience uh, like Saul, if not the physical manifestation, at least on the spiritual level of, you know, the God's power surging in and changing your life in a relatively short period of time. And so they would say it's it's new, but it's also a recovery of those biblical uh, themes. And once that became uh, the cent- the center of what was being preached, uh, uh, thousands and thousands of people began to have these kinds of experiences, and expect that that is what it meant. Uh, now, for many Protestants in Britain and America and elsewhere uh, to become a Christian, and of course, that's incredibly appealing. Right. I'm starting to see now how this gained such momentum. If someone is promising you this ecstatic experience, right, this communion with God, well, yeah, you're going to you're going to show up and see what that's about. Absolutely. And, and that's uh, if, if you understand that they're in a pervasively Christian culture that just took for granted things like heaven and hell, the need for forgiveness of sins. Um, those kind of things really didn't have to be uh, uh, persuaded. To, you know, the people didn't have to be persuaded that those were true. But what they didn't have in a lot of cases was a personal appropriation of those truths. And so, right, I mean, you can totally understand. I think even people who aren't people of faith could understand that, you know, if there is a God and if we have uh, sin standing before that God, and that forgiveness is the number one need that we have in life, then you would be ready to walk through that door 
if the preacher said, you can be born again now because this is all work of God's grace. Um, and God offers you forgiveness right now. I mean, that that's enormously appealing to the people who make those assumptions. And it was in the time of Whitfield. It was in the time of Billy Graham in the 20th century. Um, and I think it accounts for the enduring uh, popularity of evangelical Christianity globally. So this turns us to the question of content here. Uh, is that what the content of these sermons was at these revivals? Was about the need for forgiveness and this promise of an ecstatic experience and the washing away of sin? That was the focus of certainly of Whitfield's preaching. Um, I think what's distinctive about Whitfield is that he is exclusively a traveling um, itinerant minister. He doesn't have a home congregation. Um, and so he could develop a list of, of a fairly short list of evangelistic sermons that he would give in London or Boston or Savannah or wherever he was. Um, and he focused uh, not totally, but but uh, thoroughly on the experience of the new birth, uh, being born again in Jesus's words from the Gospel of John, and uh, and so where a congregational minister like Jonathan Edwards, who had to come up with new material every Sunday, you know, uh, I mean, he couldn't just keep harping on that over and over and over, or else people might get bored or want want to move on to, to other things. Um, other parts of scripture, but but Whitfield, I think, in particular, is the one whose ministry could really afford and really flourished on the focus on the message of the new birth. Now, uh, Whitfield's uh, sermons are very learned. Uh, we, we shouldn't imagine that he's that's dumbed down kind of preaching at all. I mean, he's you know giving Latin references <laughs> and talking about you know early church history in his evangelistic sermons so that just that tells you that in a cultural christian sense it's the audiences are pretty sophisticated um but when the message would finish after an hour hour and a half um he would uh, conclude on this message of you you must be born again to go to heaven to be forgiven and so you need to consider that now for yourself if you've not been born again and that that becomes a, a signature of all the great evangelistic preachers of the, of the long-term evangelical movement around the world the altar call right and woodfield did have versions of altar call now that that development becomes a little more formalized in what we generally call the second great awakening in the 1800s um, and some Christians are very critical of the the formalistic nature that it started to take on, uh, where you know you walk the aisle and you shake the preacher's hand, and the, you know the business is is done in in minutes. Uh, it, but Whitfield and Edwards were more like Puritans with a little bit of uncertainty about we don't know how long this is going to take. We don't know for sure if it's your time. But if God's calling you now, you better respond. So it was a little less performative than we've come to expect from evangelicals, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Uh, of, of course, anything becomes routinized pretty quickly. But but Edward's narrative of the Northampton revival was called a faithful narrative of the, of the surprising work of God in Northampton. And part of what he meant by surprising was 
he said in that narrative, I was pretty much preaching the same thing that I'd been preaching for years, and all of a sudden revival started. Um, he didn't necessarily expect it to happen. Uh, and in that sense, it wasn't just routine. So we've been talking a lot about the people who convert here. Is this just white folks? Or or what else is happening? Are the indigenous people being uh, forced to do this kind of stuff? And, uh, you know, we have a healthy slave population at that point. What's what is happening for the for the people of color during the Great Awakening? Right. So uh, most Africans who had come to America by the time of the Great Awakening uh, were not Christians in any sense. Uh, they They either had no familiarity with Christianity at all from their background in Africa, or if they did, it was usually uh, Roman Catholic and not Protestant. So um, there, there had been very little uh, progress made as far as evangelizing uh, the African population, which was becoming overwhelmingly enslaved in America. And, and so uh, the evangelical preachers are conflicted about uh, th- their outreach to Africans and to Native Americans, too, who were overwhelmingly non-Christian uh, at the time of the Great Awakening. Um, so they made a point, the evangelical preachers um, made a point to reach out to African Americans and Native Americans in an unprecedented way. And they, they believed that uh, Africans and Native Americans had souls and that they were going either to heaven or hell, and they wanted them to go to heaven. And so they made a point, uh, unlike some of the previous ministers in the 1600s, say, um, they they made a point to try to include uh, Africans and Native Americans in their revival meetings. On the other hand, uh, almost none of the evangelical preachers uh, believed in anything like uh, social equality and many of the leading evangelical preachers went on to be slave owners. Uh, so Whitfield was a slave owner. Jonathan Edwards was a slave owner. Um, and, and so they're, they're a kind of a halfway point, I think, between um, a, a model where the, the slaves in particular had just simply been ignored by many of the churches before. And, and certainly there was almost no abolitionist uh, sentiment to the generation of evangelicals after the Great Awakening, you start to see, especially in the North, some glimmers of anti-slavery sentiment. So Jonathan Edwards is a slave owner. Jonathan Edwards Jr. uh, is anti-slavery. So something is is starting to happen, and it's it's pushed on by the revolution, um, which generates some anti-slavery sentiment in the white North. Um, but it's very hard to hold on in the white South. Um, and so you see some glimmers of anti-slavery in, in the white evangelical South, but then it goes away. But bridges had been built. Um, there were uh, a, a few Native Americans uh, that are converted in, in uh, one or two uh, during the era of the Great Awakening or even ordained as pastors. Same with African Americans. Um, and, and so there's even a little bit of institutional leadership that's uh, given to uh, people of color. So I, I definitely wouldn't want to tout it as some uh, great record of success, but I think some uh, bridges are built 
to Native Americans and African Americans, and especially for African Americans, you can uh, date the beginnings of the Black Church really to the Great Awakening of the 1700s. And the Black Church, of course, becomes the most important religious but also social institution for the African American community generally. I want to get back to the Black Church and how. I want to get back to the Black Church in a second, but I, I want to ask another question about the indigenous people because I think another thing that we think we learn in American history is that all these Christians came over to the New World to convert the Indians. And this is something different. This is not like going into the wilderness and saying you're a Christian now. Was was this actual evangelism to Native people? As, as in, to me, what that means is attraction, that you are inviting them to come and they are making the choice, or at least inviting their own conversion experience. Right. So the uh, the earlier evangelistic models, quote unquote, were did typically uh, t- tend, especially among the English, to be, well, we're here and we're Christians, so you should become Christians. Uh, meanwhile, we're taking your land and just fighting wars against you. So that's not a very effective evangelistic strategy, right? So, and and uh, among Church of England ministers in the South, in particular, uh, the white planters, uh, the, the the leading farmers, tobacco and, and and cotton and so forth, they they were often explicitly opposed to the Church of England ministers trying to evangelize uh, slaves, um, and they they would really get angry with the ministers that they would try to uh, evangelize the slaves because they said, that will give them notions about that they should be free. And some of them questioned whether Africans even had souls. And so uh, there, there was just not a lot going on, on, on that front. So, so when you get to the great awakening, um, there are definitely some scenes where uh, Native Americans or African Americans have been, quote, you know, invited to come to the meeting, sometimes in the case of slaves with the master's permission. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, you do have accounts where uh, slaves, former slaves, free African Americans, Native Americans um, are able to come to the meetings. And if they speak English, they're able to understand the message and they convert. That way, uh, one of my uh, favorite examples is a Mohegan Indian named Samson Occam, um, who in his teens uh, is when the Great Awakening happens. And as he tells it in his uh, conversion narrative, he began to hear uh, these stories about these powerful English-speaking preachers. Um, he was in the process of learning English at the time himself, and so he was he was interested in the religious side, but also the linguistic side, and he started going to their meetings. And within the course of about six months, uh, he decided that he believed the evangelist's message, um, and he became a born-again Christian himself and uh, went on uh, with much struggle and disappointment with uh, white leaders to uh, be ordained and became the most important uh, Native American uh, Christian pastor in, uh, I suppose, in the American colonies in the 1700s. So, um, Occam is is an exceptional character in some ways, but but not totally unprecedented. So there are definitely ways that the evangelical leaders are involving 
uh, Native Americans and African Americans um, in ways that would have been pretty unusual in the years before the Great Awakening. I guess what I'm wondering is if this slow-ish emergence of African American uh, Christians, enslaved people, that seems to be the start of what is actually African American culture, African American culture, right? Like before, maybe the um, they were maybe largely you could think of them as Africans, right? But if you bring them into the fold of this church and they start to be able to have this shared tradition and understanding, it creates a sense of culture and community that maybe was nascent before. You know, it's going to happen naturally no matter what. But I wonder if if that's a key. Oh, it absolutely is. And so, the you know, the transition, I think, from African to African-American um, has to do with uh, horrors of the Middle Passage and the being often kidnapped or taken captive in war um, in Africa and sent across the ocean to somewhere in the Americas. Um, that has a destabilizing effect on the shared cultures that they had known uh, in Africa, uh, religion, uh, language. Uh, sometimes ethnic groups were kept together on plantations, but, th- but there was as much attempt in, in many ways to break up those ethnic groups out of fear of uh, common origins leading to rebellion among, among the slaves. Um, and so when you have Africans who uh, survived the Middle Passage, which many of them did not, and survived the first year or two in slavery, which many of them did not, and then uh, those people begin to have children, um, and their children usually are the ones who begin to pick up um, English. And then uh, those people are the ones who are the most likely also to get involved in the new evangelical churches. And for African Americans, it's usually some form of Methodist or Baptist Christianity. Then you get to a point by the 1790s, uh, the generation of somebody like David George, um, or uh, the early 1800s when you have uh, Richard Allen in Philadelphia, who's a pioneer of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. When you start having uh, African Americans ordained as pastors and taking up leadership roles and being able have, to have, in some cases, especially in northern cities, to have independent churches uh, from white control, um, that is definitely uh, the, the, the beginning of a full-fledged, Christianized uh, African American culture that really had not existed before. And we'll break in here to continue with another great American tradition, capitalism. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Stamps.com. As we adjust to the new normal, we still need to be smart about how we do business. And luckily, there's Stamps.com to make things easier. Thousands of small business owners have discovered the benefits of Stamps.com in recent months. They've been able to keep their businesses running and avoid crowds at the post office, all from their own computers. With Stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and avoid going to the post office, and you'll save money 
with discounted rates you can't get at the post office. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts of up to 62% and no residential surcharges. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. And, as I said, with Stamps.com, you will get great discounts, too. Five cents off of every stamp and up to 62% off USPS and UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. Right now, my listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. With Friends Like These is also brought to you by Ritual. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, now more than ever. And that is why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Kat Scheider and her team of scientists at Ritual are making clinically tested the new normal. Not only have they obsessively researched each nutrient in their visionary women's multivitamin, carefully choosing forms that are absorbable by the body, they've also tested their formula. Ritual left out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some traditional multivitamins. I personally take Ritual, and it is part of my morning ritual. I take other meds as well. And like having everything laid out and having like knowing what I'm going to do first thing in the morning, you know, it starts my morning off feeling like I've got something at least a little under control. And ritual is part of that. Ritual uses vegan agal oil instead of fish oil, which comes from the fermentation of microalgae, a patented process that leaves minimal environmental contamination. 40% of women cannot properly utilize the synthetic form of folate, or folic acid, which can be found in many multivitamins. And that is why Ritual uses folate in its absorbable form to help cover women's needs. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Try it out for satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. And that is 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. So maybe this is like a lot of people who grew up in the 80s, but my parents were careful to keep me away from sugary cereals. They, you know, I eat Cheerios, which are great. Cheerios are awesome. Uh, But I didn't have the fun kinds of cereals like Fruit Loops and Count Chocula and whatnot. Except when I went to go visit my grandparents. When I went to go visit my grandparents, my grandfather and I had a special little what I thought might be a secret tradition, which is on Saturday nights, he would come and get me sleeping on the couch and we would go to the living room and watch Saturday Night Live and eat sugary cereal. I bet my parents knew about it and my grandmother knew about it, but it felt like this special thing that my grandfather and I did together. And again, it's the only time I got sugary cereal. I don't eat sugary cereal on a regular basis today, except for Magic Spoon, which is not really sugary. I get to have that memory of bonding with my granddad without all the sugar, basically. It has zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. There are four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. 
Frosted and chocolate are the ones that remind me the most of Granddad. It tastes amazing. It is almost too good to be true. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. My husband likes the fruity flavor, by the way. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use that promo code WFLT at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT, code WFLT, for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Back to the conversation with Thomas Kidd. So I want to fast forward a little Or maybe we're just uh, putting our foot on the gas but not going forward. Because what I am curious about uh, is something you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, which is the ways in which the Great Awakening prefigures sort of American culture, right? Like we see in the first Great Awakening some of the things that we come to believe as kind of very American characteristics, Uh, primarily among them perhaps celebrity. Like you said, George Whitfield was our first celebrity. And there's other stuff in there too, right? I think so. I, I think that America has, uh, first of all, it's it's a culture that through present day is heavily influenced by Christian revival. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been debate about whether there's been a third or a fourth great awakening. Um, but when you look at uh, the, the, the difference between America and um the countries that supplied a lot of the European uh, background for for America. Um, one of the one of the differences religiously is this this enduring waves of Christian uh, Protestant usually revival um, that has continued to supply energy uh, for the evangelical movement and for the related Pentecostal movement, especially in the twentieth and twenty first centuries. And so. Um, even though there are worrying signs everywhere for Christian churches, uh, number of ad- adherents were, were still far more religious uh, than, uh, say, Britain is um, in terms of uh, religious practice and Christian practice in particular. Um, but a lot of political movements uh, get cast in terms of revival um, and uh, recurrence to first principles and rebirth and renewed moral mission. And, uh, you you know, even uh, presidents like uh, Barack Obama, uh, a product himself of the black church, was very, very good at speaking in revivalist terms, even though uh, most of the the Christian content for Obama as a politician is is drained out. But the cadences and the themes uh, often applied to Obama's type of politics are are there, and uh, listeners can remember what it, what it was like in two thousand eight. Uh, that that the the excitement and and the feeling of being part of something uh, transcendent and, be, and beyond your yourself. I think uh, Obama's familiarity with uh, the the black church and the rhetoric and the motivation and those those kind of things. I think that is. That's just one example of the power of this kind of ideal of revival and renewal uh, that that 
it, it's shot through American uh, political and cultural history, sometimes in uh, surprising ways. And I was just going to ask if also in sometimes perhaps dark ways, because uh, one could hear the phrase, make America great again, as a kind of revivalistic refrain. Sure. And uh, you know that that Donald Trump has uh, very uh, consciously cultivated connections with evangelical and Pentecostal uh, leaders, mostly white leaders, but not exclusively. Uh, and and uh, there were Christian leaders in particular, people like Franklin Graham, who uh, said that um, that Donald Trump's election could lead to awakening. Now, I mean, how many people took that literally? I, I don't know, but uh, there, there was, de- there was definitely. I mean, I, you know, who knows? But, but there, there was definitely uh, recurrence, and it comes very naturally, I think, in, in American politics. But it's not ex- an exclusively Republican uh, thing. Uh, is is for you know, good or for bad, manipulative or not? Is that kind of appeal to the language of awakening and revival? And I wonder if there's a more personal way that it echoes as well, which is the sense that we have, it's not a peculiarly American sense, but re- uh, individual renewal as well, that we can always start over, that we can always begin again, that you can wipe the slate clean and have a, a new identity and a, a new um, way to create your future. That seems like it might be a part of that uh, template as well. For sure. And 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 sometimes you know, it's it's so woven into American history that sometimes you don't realize what's going on. It, you don't you don't realize it's there. I I have to remind my students uh, in my American history class that in the Gettysburg Address, when Lincoln says that the nation can have a new birth of freedom, I said, what what is an audience in 1863 here when they hear the new birth of freedom and they've already studied the Great Awakening, <laughs> so they say. Oh, you mean like born again? And I said, yep, that's that's what everybody in 1863 would have registered that immediately. Uh, where, you know, we, even though, you know, sometimes we still memorize the Gettysburg Address, but we don't realize that it's that kind of religious language being applied in that case to the significance of the Civil War. So now I'm really going to put the pedal to the metal here and fast forward because I am just dying to ask you about the parallels between the Great Awakening and what some people have called today's social upheaval, the Great Awakening. And I, I, it's a, a brilliant turn of phrase. I will credit Matt Iglesias for that. And I've seen um, people on both the right and left talk about this movement for social justice in religious terms. And it certainly feels like some kind of a mass conversion experience to me. Although I will take your point that I don't think it's the case of people dramatically shifting their beliefs in the same way that you said the Great Awakening wasn't about people going from being like complete heathens to born-again Christians. They were Christian-ish and then born-again but I, it does feel like there is this shift taking place that is awakening people. I think so. And, and uh, you know, 
you wouldn't want to push too hard about the connections, but there is that kind of template that is available to us as Americans about, you, you know, a personal crisis, a uh, crisis of faith of, of one sort or another leading to renewed commitment and even individual transformation. You know, the narrative wouldn't be told in the same way. I mean, there's there's not this idea of, um, you, you know, I have personally sinned and need to be forgiven. <laughs> well, by God. I don't know. There's some people that have, are coming to believe they may have personally sinned in a way. Again, I don't want to push it too hard, but there is a sense of taking responsibility, right, of looking back and saying, oh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think I think there's a desire to not be complicit uh, and not to not perpetuate sin. Um, I, I don't think for most of these people um, that I mean, they may be Christians or, or religious people of other uh, types. But, um, you know, the, the idea of an intimate relationship with God and forgiveness from God. And those is that's where the analogy, I think, starts to break down. Um, but but I, I do think that it, it's tapping into that deeper revivalistic tradition um, that was made available to Americans in such a powerful way by the Great Awakening and has continued to be with us. And so uh, the civil rights movement, I think, was that way. Uh, the, the civil rights movement was so deeply rooted in the black church uh, that that the linkages were closer. Um, but but it's it is that that rhetoric, uh, and and there's that kind of personal transformation and commitment to a cause that's greater than you. Um, and this is you know something I can I can give my life for. I mean that it's that important. Um, I, I I think. There, there are resonances everywhere, and it, to, to, I think to the extent that that's the case, it's drawing off this really deep imprinted template that we've got in American culture of revivalism of various kinds. Do you think that there is anything that these past revivals, revival movements of various kinds, can tell us about what is happening now? I guess what I'm fishing for is maybe a thought about how um, the level of transience in this moment is like, is this going to stick? I'll put it that way. The uh, revivalists, including people like Jonathan Edwards, were always worried that the initial excitement wouldn't lead to lasting change. And in fact, uh, Jonathan, a lot of people don't know that Jonathan Edwards was eventually fired by his church. Um, he was he was just too hardcore and intense for for them. And they, I think they just eventually couldn't uh, hang with him anymore. And he was so disappointed at what the Great Awakening had become. And by about five years after uh, it had happened, he, he just felt like maybe he was all for naught. Um, and of course, Edwards would have said that whatever lasting good had come out of the Great Awakening was because of God's power, not because of human initiative. But um, there, there is always that kind of risk of the sensation of the moment, um, you know, going to a meeting or two and and feeling like, yes, this is this is really big. But but the, you know, 
the leaders of the civil rights movement, for instance, I think would have said, you, you know, you, you got to be ready for the long haul. Um, and it wasn't just about the march on Washington. It was, you know, it was about the nitty gritty work, day to day political work in the religious context, the work of, you know, continuing evangelization and building up of churches and those kind of things. And, and so, uh, I mean, this is no surprise, I think, to anybody who's involved with one of these kind of revivalistic movements, but yet it always remains the case that, you know, the, the temptation is to be really mobilized at the beginning by the voice of someone like a Whitfield, who's so exciting and so unprecedented and introducing you to things that you never knew about before. Uh, but the test really comes in the following months and, and years uh, and devotion to that, that, that cause that first inspired you. I think that's probably as good an answer as I'm going to get. As good an answer as anyone can give, really. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And that is it for the show. Remember, we have been trying something new this season. Please rate and review and give us feedback if you want at crooked underscore friends or me personally at Anna Marie Cox. Until then, take care of yourselves. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo.